Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the St. Louis Podcast for December 8th, 2022. I'm one of your glorious hosts, Garrett Atkins, the CEO of iMedia, founder of Half Coast Studios, West County Insulation, Game Pass Counter, PS Plus Tracker, writer for Forbes.com via the Forbes Agency Council, and verified on Facebook because I'm just that cool. And alongside me is my co-host, the Chief Sales Officer of iMedia, Managing Partner of West County Insulation, and the winner of Best Beard in the Midwest from Time Magazine, three years running, Eric fucking Brown. How are you, Eric? I'm doing well. I'm excited to be here today. And uh, I think that award is made up, but I will. I'll take it. It might be. So thank you. It, it might just be. <laughs> today, we have Robert Riley on the St. Louis Podcast, and we're going to get into the weeds with them. But before we do, this is the St. Louis Podcast, where each and every Thursday at 7 a.m. Central Standard Time, we drop an episode of the St. Louis Podcast on all major podcasting audio and video platforms, such as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, major social media platforms, and more, where we interview a new or recurring badass, figure out their story, talk about the state of the world in a satirical and sometimes serious manner. Manner and talk about things you can do to be an even bigger badass in the world of business. If you like the idea of that, you can become a part of the show and get it ad-free by supporting us over at patreon.com slash the St. Louis podcast for as low as a single dollar. Again, we are running the I Just Started a Podcast special and giving away ad-free episodes and other goodies for as low as $1 over at patreon.com slash the St. Louis podcast. Cheaper than the coffee and energy drink I eat or drink every day, moving me closer to an early grave. If you don't want to give us a dollar because you hate us, no problem. You can watch the show live or later on youtube.com slash the St. Louis podcast, just like Katie Baker or Matt Parker is right now. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're watching live or later and we say something wrong, say something you hate or say something you want to hear more about, you can visit us at stlouispodcast.com and leave us a message telling us all about it. This episode is brought to you by Half Coast Studios, the number one recording and podcasting studio in the entire universe with location in St. Louis, Missouri. If you want to start a podcast, this is the place to do it. Now let's jump into it. Today we have Robert Riley here with us at Half Coast Studios in St. Louis, Missouri. Robert, how are you doing today? Pretty good. Pretty good. Glad to have you. So I'm going to run through your bio real quick. Uh, you got a long one, and I'm sure I'm missing some stuff as well. So grew up in Orange County. Uh, we got on here 2008, released from federal prison, moved to St. Louis, Missouri because your mom was here, took part in the 12-step program. Uh, Mike gave you a chance as a plant manager, and we're going to dive into a lot of this stuff as well. Help friends and uh, also help get laws uh, passed to remove barriers, barriers Excuse me, to give people access to Narcan. We got recovery supportive homes uh, right now, three men's houses and two women's houses for a total of 51 beds. Also co-founded Santa Lake Recovery Center um, in 2021, after 14 years in sobriety, got back uh, off the train for 10 months. Um, and this kind of led you into uh, starting, you know, the cookie hustle and off also uh, the coffee culture truck. So we'll hop into a lot of this. Uh, that I just went over. So again, thank you for joining us, uh, Robert. So kind of to start us off, uh, you know, we like to start off, you know, what happened as a child, you know, in Orange County, kind of take a dive into that and, you know, how it led you to where you are now. Yeah. So, you know, my mom, who doesn't have any addiction issues or anything like that, she did, she has struggled with her mental health over the years. Um, you know, she was a single mom. My dad went to prison when I was two and a half. He got out when I was 36. He was a heroin user. Um, he's currently not really sure, I think, in Las Vegas. He's been out of prison quite a, quite a while now and and um, has just chosen to 
be homeless and gamble and still um, use drugs. Um, I don't know how often. It's been a few months since I've heard from him. So Your father's but, been in and out of prison? Yeah. Oh, my, my dad went to prison when I was two and a half. He got out. He got out a couple times in between, but he got out officially and has stayed out when I was 36 years old. So... Um, yeah, he, he spent my whole life in prison and, um, and so, and same issue as mine, drugs, alcohol, you know, anything. Um, now he's added the gambling piece to it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but is he any good winning any money? Uh, he wins, you know, like any good gambler, he wins, but then wants to win more and then loses and starts (laughs) back over. So that's how the house works. Yeah. (laughs) But, but that being said, I love my father. Very much, very much, because um, I can relate to him a lot where he's at, you know. So, yep. so you know, my story is is 14 years old, drank some uh, Jack Daniels for the first time. And, um, you know, it just kicked off. And being in Orange County, it was like, okay, I drank some Jack Daniels. Let's do some, let's smoke some weed. Let's do some cocaine. Next mm-hmm. thing I know, I'm going to Compton, California to buy some PCP, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> yep. it was that quick, legit. Wow. And, um, and then, you know, just started getting into trouble as a, as a teenager, um, was getting locked up, released, locked up, released. Finally, they said no more release. And, you know, you got to do this, that, and the other. And, Married my childhood sweetheart um, when I was uh, 19 years old and um, had a son, my oldest son, Tyler, and we relocated to Colorado and I pretty much taken the drugs out of the equation, but really that's where my alcoholism really started taking off. And, um, you know, after a couple of years of that, she was done with it and, um, and you know, as any good alcoholic, I just thought, well, great. Now I don't have her bitching about what I'm drinking. (laughs) You know what I mean? Um, and so really dove into alcoholism and, and, um, not being a father, not being a dad by, by any means. I had two sons, um, at that point. And my mom, I'll never forget it. My mom came up to, um, uh, Colorado to pick me up. She had relocated down to Texas where all my family's originally from on her side. And, uh, and she came up there and I was in jail and she's like, look, they the, like the judge, I just spoke to the judge and they just want you to leave the state of Colorado. <laughs> like They don't care that you still have six month probation or parole left, whatever it was. Uh, they just want you to leave. And so, you know, I can get you out, but you got to come down there and get sober and kind of get your life together and be a dad to these boys. And of course I'm in jail. I'm like, whatever I got to do, you know, yeah. get out yeah. today. And um, so I get down to Texas. And I kid you not, the very first person I meet is a cousin of mine. Now, this is going to qualify my Texas family and what I was walking into down in Texas. Let's hear it. My cousin, who's just a couple of years younger than me, his real, on his birth certificate, first name is Budweiser. <laughs> so my mom takes me to Texas to get sober with my cousin Budweiser, you know. And, America. Uh, yeah, America. His sister's name is Brandy, and that's the truth as well. So, <laughs> so. Needless to say, I didn't get sober. Um, and, you know, I got back into the drugs, fast forward in and out of jail, um, uh, Texas Department of Corrections. I'm in federal prison. Um, uh, and three things happened in 2006. My original sobriety date is September 6, 2006. Uh, three things happened. I get a letter from my son, Aaron Riley, um, who, the letter starts off, dear Robert. 
you know, stop writing us, stop calling us, stop saying you're our dad, you know, you've never been in our lives, blah, blah, blah. A few days later, I find out my little cousin um, was murdered um, and he had robbed a drug dealer and basically it came back to get him. And this is a kid that like idolized me because I was this gangster older cousin, you know, in prison and all this and that. And, um, and then, uh, you know, so those two things happened. And then like a day later, I'm out on the track and I'm walking the track with this old school guy named Jackson. And I'm telling him about my dad and how I'm going down every path that he ever went down and repeating my childhood with my boys, you know, and, uh, the letter and then my cousin Ashley and what happened to him. And, and uh, he says, come out here tomorrow. I want to show you something. And I come out the next day and he hands me a piece of paper and it's his time computation sheet. And next to his release date, it said deceased. In the feds, it's called truth in sentencing. Mm -hmm. So if you get a 50 year sentence in the feds, you don't get parole after 10 years or right. 15. You, you go do 50 years. Yeah. You know? and, um, and so if you get a life sentence in the feds, you don't leave until you're dead. And he, he looked me dead in the eyes and he said, if you don't change everything, this is what you're going to end up with. And so we went on lockdown that night. It's a strong message. Yeah. And we went on lockdown that night and uh, there was some violence on the unit, which never happened at a, at a medium facility um, because it was all politics at that point. And um, we were on lockdown and, you know, I just, I spent 30 days just kind of I got to do something, you know, and I didn't know that sobriety was the path. Um, but I was talking to my celly. I was, you know, talking through the vents with some other guys and they're like, have you ever thought about just taking like drugs and alcohol out of the equation for a while, like for a year? And I'm like, what? That was so foreign to me. What do you yeah. mean? Like, like Friday after a long work week, not having a couple of beers to relax. What got you in the drugs and alcohol in the first place, you think? <clears throat> What was so appealing about it? What got you into it? Well, as a as a licensed drug and alcohol counselor, I could answer that one way. As, as somebody, my story is this. It was always a way for me to escape the reality. Yeah. Fair enough. Right? We all and, got something that does that for us. Yeah. And, and I used it as an emotional regulator for whatever reason. I don't know how to regulate my emotions. If I was sad, I didn't want to feel that. So I'd drink, you know, if sure. I was, if I was angry, you don't want to feel that you got to calm down, you know, so you might smoke a joint or something. Uh, if I would get jealous or something over a girlfriend or, you know, something like that, well, might as well stick a couple of needles in so my arm. That you know, like, mm. like that's, that's the truth though. It was always something. And the more you do that, the less you're able to naturally moderate those emotions. And so then you become not just dependent upon the substances, but dependent upon the escape. Yeah. Escapism. Yeah. This'll do it. So, so, um, get out of federal prison, come to St. Louis. What um, year you get out again? Uh, March 14th to May 14th, 2008 is okay. the day that I got released. Came to St. Louis cause my mom had, you know, uh, married, come up here on contract work. Medic and you're in prison in Texas, right? Uh, at that point, no, I was in Forest City, Arkansas at that point okay. at the federal prison. They'll send you all over the country. And that's where I was at. And so, um, because it's a point system. And, and so I come to St. Louis because my mom's living here now. This is my old address. And um, had about 20 months of sobriety. So 20 months between those three events happening in 2006 and me getting out 
Um, I had about 20 months of not using anything, um, going to meetings in the joint. And, um, and I get out and I did six months in the federal halfway house here, Cope Brilliant and Kings Highway. Um, I got a job at a printing company that was where we you're talking, Mike's the plant manager, not me. I was, I became a supervisor there, but, um, and I would fill in for him as plant manager, but I worked my way up to that. So long story short, I'm, uh, you know, some opportunities were given to me. I had a girlfriend that was going to school to be a social worker. She started writing papers and using me as the subject. And I wanted to know what she was writing about. Right. Yeah. You know, like, is she talking shit or what? <laughs> you know? She got on these papers. Yeah. And, but it just sparked these conversations with us. And I started getting interested. And um, she said, well, why don't you go to college? And I'm like, come on, I'm 40 year old ex-convict. What am I, you know, what am I going to do in college? And she's like, there's a, there's a scholarship for people in recovery called the Next Step Scholarship. And uh, they'll pay for everything. Just go see if they'll give you some money. Go to school. For a four-year degree or what? Yeah, for They'll pay for all of it. For a master's degree, everything. Oh, wow. wow. I didn't even know that was yeah. a thing. Okay. So they'll, as long as you're doing the work, they will help you out. And so, so, uh, so I had that opportunity to go back to college. It and, might be cheaper to go to prison to go to college. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think I might do that. The time penalty. I don't know if I want to take that. <laughs> yeah, and the food. Yeah, <laughs> that is a big deal. <laughs> There's no carpet in prison. Yeah. 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 So um, that's funny enough because that's the one thing I really missed towards the Was end. Was carpet? Like, carpet. Just like being able to lay, lay on your living room floor. Of course, now most living rooms, they've they're hardwood. hardwood. Yeah, yeah, they're all hardwood. But anyway, so... Uh, so I'm out and I've got this job at this printing company, started out on the ground floor, um, working my way up in that company just because, uh, you know, I was told just show up and do your job. And that's what I did. And um, so I wanted to actually ask you about about that. Did, did Why do you think Mike gave you a chance? You know, it's I love this story. So when I interviewed for that job, I literally had a case manager, a federal case manager sitting next to me in the interview. And I don't know if you ever had that experience either one no, of you? Not no, familiar, it's not no. normal, right? Right, yeah. And um, and so he he offered me the job when I was back at the federal halfway house, I got a message, they offered me the job. I called him back and I'm like, listen, I was all buttoned up. You couldn't see all my tattoos. Like, I just want to let you know like who I am, you know? And he's like, I don't care. Are they going to slow you down from running my machine? <laughs> you <laughs> right, know, yeah. like that was his attitude. And uh, I'm still friends with Mike to this day. And, and they're a big, that job, the consistency of that job was a big deal for me. Because, you know, I, some of the other things I was up against is I got out of federal prison. I owed back child support, like over $100,000 in back child support because it had been racking up. And, yeah. and interest compounded every year. And so they were taking, I was, I think I started at $9 an hour. And it was right before the economy collapsed in uh, that 08. Way. Yeah. yeah. And so, uh, so four fifty off the top was coming out for child support off the gross. That left me four dollars and fifty cents an hour. The federal halfway house took twenty five percent gross, so that left me twenty five percent to then pay the taxes on all of it. And I worked um, for about the first four months where I was borrowing twelve dollars a week from my mom after working a forty hour work week to be able to pay the halfway house. Wow! So. But I always tell guys, like, especially guys coming out, like, you can still overcome it, you know? And I was riding the bus two hours from Copra and Kings Highway out to uh, Gravoy Bluffs. Two hours there, two hours back yeah. every day. 
but all this stuff built me to to where I could push through. You know what I mean? Um, being on parole in Texas at the same time, the feds, you know, and they're like, you mess up, they're you're just done. So why what was your question again? So I was I was actually just asking about Mike and then and then on why on, did he give me the opportunity? Yeah, yeah. yeah. He needed workers. Sure. Sounds like he had a and, good head on his shoulders because whenever he came in, he didn't care. He was like, I just want to let you know who I am. I have tattoos under here, all that stuff. And Mike was like, why would I give a shit? That, that's not going to affect how you run the machine. Very yeah. similar to our views on running a business, which is yeah. not caring about the, the bullshit. I have so yeah. many full circle things that I'll probably, we'll probably get into. Here's the full circle about Mike and we can move on to the next part. The full circle is a few years later, Mike's daughter was um, struggling with substance use. I got to help Mike's daughter. That's oh, awesome. Nice. So there's the full, the Give first, back, the yeah. first of many full circles that we'll probably go through when when we're talking about this. So you also had at like the same time around Mike also trying to find housing. I know you moved you when you came back to St. Louis, you were with your mom, correct? Mm -hmm. So then you were trying to find a place, obviously, of your own. And that's when Linda came in, correct? Uh, Cindy. Cindy. OK. Cindy. Yeah. And she was, you know, she kind of gave you the same shot. She, you know, I had applied to like four or five different places. And of course they want a $50 application fee to yep. run your credit mm -hmm. and all that stuff. And I kept getting denied because of all my felonies, you know, right. guy with 14 felonies, a violent offender in some of them and people all who stuff. charge you to, you know? to run credit. Yeah. And so when I called her, I said, listen, I don't want to waste your time or any more of my money. I don't have it to waste. Right. Right. You just yep. heard what I had out of $9. I said, um, here's the deal. I've got 14 felonies. Some of them are violent. I said, but I'm also working a 12 step program, which means I'm always going to tell you the truth. You know, um, I'm trying to do the right thing every single day. I have a job. I have this much money to pay a month. What do you think? And she said, fill out the application. If everything, when I run your background, if everything matches up, she said, not a problem. She, she did ask me, she said, you're not a sex offender, are you? I said, no, <laughs> furthest thing from any of that. <laughs> I said, um, and she goes, okay, then I won't have a problem with it. But she, and she said, as long as everything matches up. And again, to this day, I'm still good friends with her. That's what I, that's what I would figure. Yeah. yeah. So she gave me a shot and I lived there for many years and, you know, she thought it was cool when I wanted to paint an accent wall. She's like, this, here's this tattoo ex-convict wanting to paint, <laughs> paint an accent wall in my living room. But I was, it was all brand new, yep. you know? And that's a theme throughout my story is that I was, you know, uh, somebody else asked me this question in an interview. He said, you know, why did, what kept you going? I said, it was all new to me. I knew, I know how to go do time. I know how to go do crimes. I know how to do dope. What I didn't know how, how successful I could be was out here. Mm -hmm. And that goes into my business life. You know, even my business, like I'm not this great entrepreneur. I've had a ton of success with businesses since I started getting into that um, beyond my counseling stuff. Um, you know, built, I've done four startups in five years. It's a lot. And um, very successful businesses. And it was because I just challenged myself of, okay, well, you know, let me follow this and this and this and see what happens, you know, and then use some of my street smarts, honestly, my yeah. business smarts, like selling dope and selling cookies are not too far apart. You know what I mean? You yeah. make them want them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you got to have great, good cookies, right, Katie? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, uh, so we're sitting across from you, Robert, today. I hear you talking 
calm, collect, well-spoken. And then I, you just told us your story. And of course, we read a little bit about it in the past. What do you think? And maybe you always were this well-spoken, calm, collect, even when you were doing drugs, drinking alcohol time, whatever, getting into trouble. What do you think has... What do you think is the number one thing that attributed to where you are today um, as opposed to where you were back when things weren't so hot? Being in recovery. I mean, it's for me, it, it all starts there. You know, having a, um, a spiritual life today is very important to me. You know, my morning meditation, watching the sunrise out of my coffee shop every morning is the most favorite part of my day. Religious um, at all? Not religious per se, not opposed to it. I say, you know, I'm seeking, like, I'm not a knower, I'm a seeker, mm -hmm. you know, and, um, you know, I love what Jesus taught, just like I love what Buddha taught or some sure. of the others, you know, and for me, I'm seeking, um, it's that relationship that's most important to me of, of, that's just the most important thing to me, you know, that, besides my recovery. Sure. And my, re I wouldn't have that relationship without my recovery. And what part of recovery do you think helps? Because recovery, that's a pretty broad process slash term. Is it the people? Is it certain things that you were taught during the process of recovery? For people out there who are listening, because uh, Eric was a bit of a shithead. I was definitely a fuck up. Um, uh, you have your own story. We all do. For those of us who are still trying to find our path, I, I mean, I know we're always finding our path, but for those of us who don't have our shit together yet, what... What part of recovery do you think you focused on the most that helped you the most? Yeah, and recovery means something completely different to me in 2022 than it did in 2008 um, because I understand that recovery is so much different than for everybody. You know, um, I chose a path that used the 12 steps, um, but I know plenty of people that have gone other paths. I know a girl that was banging three and a half grams of heroin every day that once she found out accidentally she was pregnant, mm -hmm. that caring and loving that child became her recovery path mm -hmm. and she's not picked up since. So like, you can't tell me that there's not different things. So for me, it was definitely going down the 12 steps. It was, it was the connection with another man. My first sponsor, Tony, you know, he looked me in the eyes and he said, I want the best life possible for you. And I believed him, you know, coming from where I came from, I didn't trust a lot of men. Yeah. You know what yep. I mean? Like, sure. And, um, and so, you know, we didn't even touch into some of that other stuff as a child. Um, but you know, I, uh, the 12 steps and then, you know, learning more, educating myself, getting an education, educating myself also on addiction, you know. Um, How do you educate yourself? Um, through spiritual means, um, through connecting with other guys, sponsoring guys, mm -hmm. um, you know, and there's such a strong connection when you're sponsoring a guy, you know, because I get to open up and be authentic about myself. And in the hopes that they will do the same in return, because there's so much freaking freedom in that. There's so much freedom in actually being who we are and not doing this impression management. Like I probably did with you guys when I came in here. Hey, I've done this. I've done that. You sure. Know, letting you know that I had a little bit of experience, right? Mm -hmm. right? Rather than coming in here after about five minutes and telling you guys, I'm nervous as shit. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah, that's absolutely. me being authentic. Yeah. You know, who cares about the NBC or whatever yeah. else, sure. you know, yep. like I'm nervous, you know, I'm nervous, not just because it's 
of it, it being a new environment and a new new deal and not knowing how you guys were going to ask me questions and stuff, but also being nervous because I'm also giving up a piece of me. Yeah. You know? yeah. And I want to be honest about it. Does that make sense? Yeah. It does. Absolutely. Yeah, I'd be nervous if I was sitting across someone who's wearing a suit at a podcast like this for no reason as well. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's me. I like the suit. I like Thank the suit. You. Thank you. He looks good every day. But we black hoodie uh, crew. I, black hoodie I, crew. I dress right here. like a bum every day. <laughs> so I so um, you know, we got we got into to Mike and Cindy, and you know, obviously a lot of people played a big role in the kind of your resolve has that kind of led you into what you do now you know in terms of so much so much so many people have given to you it's almost like i have to give back you know so the next things that we're probably going to talk about um the cool things that i've got to do um like those were all opportunities placed before me it's up to me to seize the opportunity Mm -hmm. you know what i mean and and the other part of it is we I just thought it was common sense stuff. Like I didn't think I was going out and changing the world. You know what I mean? Uh, so in 2011, 12, I met Chad Sabora. He and I became best friends and, and people were dying around St. Louis at the time of heroin. Not mm-hmm. today. It's fentanyl. Yep. Back then it was heroin. They were body dumps. You know, they were pushing them out in alleys and at motels and all these things. And so we were like, well, why isn't anybody giving them Narcan? Yep. <laughs> like the antidote, yep. you know? And so we started handing out Narcan and here's what happened. Somebody picked up on it at the news and they ran a story on these two rebels. That's what they call this. Here in St. Louis? Yeah. Okay. When was this? Uh, 2011, 12, okay. right okay. in there. And um, they ran a story on us, you know, these two rebels, because that's what they called us yeah. back then, um, handing out Narcan. And and then we started having like all these people reaching out to us like, hey, can you help our son? Can you just talk to him? Can you do this? And that's what we started doing. In the 12-step community, we call it 12-stepping somebody, um, which is just sharing our experience, strength, and hope. And um, But we were just trying to, you know, just we just started doing that. We started going and helping families and this and that. And then some moms put together you know, hey, you guys need some support to be able to do this because, you you know, you're still working at the printing company and mm-hmm. going to college, you know, full time. And and Chad was waiting tables, you know, and, and like. Where'd you get us, the money for the for the Narcan? Uh, from the moms. OK, OK. I was going to say Narcan yeah. is not free. Yeah. yeah. And, Nor and, cheap, and, and we had a we had a, a mentor of ours out of the Chicago uh, Recovery Alliance up mm-hmm. in Chicago that gave us a bunch of Narcan to first hand out. Um, Chad had gone up there and picked it up. And so, and then we were like, you know, everybody started freaking out. You know, you guys are enabling them and you guys are rebels. And we're like, oh, the rebel part's probably true. But, you know, the only thing we're enabling is breathing. Yeah, we're supposed to let them die. Like, why don't you guys just be good humans for a minute? And so we were naive enough to think two guys from you know, St. Living in St. Louis could drive up to Jeff city and, and write these laws and get them passed. And we did. And not because we were like super smart about Mm -hmm. it or anything. We were consistent. We were definitely passionate and invested in it. And speak uh, more on that. What'd you, would you want the Jeff city? We talked about this a little bit before the podcast is definitely in my notes. You want the Jeff city and you helped pass or some laws were laid in the Narcan. What did you get done? So what we did, I started 
I started emailing. I, we did some research on who the most liberal um, mm-hmm. folks were in Jeff City. Sure. Yeah. And we started sending out emails saying, we need to get this so we can save some lives. And we found somebody that was willing to run the bill for us. Chad and I had to do the research and put together, like literally put together all the wording on the laws and stuff like that. And it, it took us a couple of years. The first one we passed was the um, uh, making it so first responders would even carry Narcan. And oh, so, so they didn't even carry Narcan before this? A lot of them did not. No. Interesting. And they yeah. do now? Oh, yeah. Is yeah, it yeah, mandatory? Yeah. yeah. Now it's all over the state. Okay. Uh, it's not mandatory. There's still agencies that won't. Okay. Um, but yeah, so. And what agencies I, I, did that affect? <clears throat> with, with, uh, so all first responders. So police, um, firefighters, paramedics. So that's you know. a big deal. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I got to, here's a guy with 14 felonies, still can't even vote. I got to stand behind, literally stood behind the governor, Governor Nixon at the time, Jay Nixon, um, while he signed something into law that I helped uh, co-author. How many people helped get that passed? Uh, there was, that's a, that's a great question because there was a lot of people. Chad and I always get the credit for it, but there were so many moms that testified. My friend Kathy Arbini and, and others, my, my friend Mary, um, you know, there were so many others that helped that really brought this because they had lost loved ones. Chad and I didn't have that story. Mm-hmm. We're just two rebels, right? Yeah. We're willing to go put ourselves in front of them. But they had the stories that really touched people. And, sure. Um, and you had to have that emotional piece. You know, you had to touch somebody emotionally because, you know, politics is all about what can you do for yeah. me? You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, um, so we first passed the first responders and then we went on to pass a second law, um, getting a second bill passed. And I don't know if you guys know how hard it is to pass a law. Well, that's what I was going to ask. It's extremely yes. hard to yeah, pass a law. Yeah. Like it could get killed at any committee. It could get not, you know what I mean? You could run out of time, all these things. That's what I was going to ask next is the time. <clears throat> you know, I, I, I'm not in the politics at all whatsoever. I, I try to avoid any news on politics. That said, I do hear that getting legislation passed takes forever if it even does happen. How long did it take from for that first uh thing you got done how long did that take from inception of the idea to to getting passed in the law three years on the first one wow the second one came along a little bit faster which was um third party access to narcan in other words um we got a you have to have a prescription Mm -hmm. right to get narcan to go to the pharmacist we we got a standing order we wrote a law where there's a standing order at the pharmacies that all you have to do is go in and show your ID. So now you don't need one? So that you don't have to have a prescription any longer. And so that we could distribute Narcan, Mm -hmm. widely distribute it. In other words, I couldn't get arrested for handing out a prescription without having a prescription. But you did hand out Narcan beforehand. We did. We we broke those. We were rebels. You took a risk. (laughs) We were rebels. Why was it even illegal to do that in the first place? You can't OD on Narcan, can you? No, you you cannot. The Uh, only thing it'll do is kick the uh, opioids off the receptors. That's the only thing it'll do. So if it can't hurt you, why were they opposed to doing that in the first place? Yeah, there's a lot of good questions like that you know, we could ask. <laughs> well, I think <laughs> I have a couple ideas, like how it would yeah. hurt opioid companies, perhaps. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. It's funny. So the the joke is there was an agency that we talked to um, at right before we started our nonprofit, which is the Missouri Network for Opiate Reform and Recovery. Now it's known as Mo Network. It's down in South Broadway. Chad and I co-founded that. Chad and I wrote the checks for that building out of my $9 an hour paid my job mm-hmm. and, and him waiting tables at the very beginning. But, um, 
they they there was an agency we went to and the head of that agency is the one that actually called us rebels you know and and uh do you think they meant that in a good way or a bad way it, definitely in a bad way are they wow. still around the agency the agency's still around what agency person, do you can you say or no i i you know, I'm in enough fire. <laughs> I'm in enough. I think I think the people need to hear it. You know, it was, it was NCADA. Okay, um, I'm not familiar. They, they've changed their name now. They're Prevented, and they're ran by a completely different group of people that are for harm reduction. So, okay, people say that Chad and I brought harm reduction to the St. Louis area because that's what that is. Giving Narcan well, is did. a form of harm reduction. Giving out clean needles is a form of harm reduction. That's something else we did for a long time, and so. Anyway, so they, they, he called us those rebels, right? Mm -hmm. And, and that really drove us to do what we did. I was about to say, lit a fire. You know what I mean? Oh, I know what you mean. Yeah. So. I mean, that's, that's, I mean, that's a lot of how a lot of people start their first business or one of them. It's just like, you know, someone essentially saying just like, I think with, uh, with Vi, when we first started, it was kind of almost based on the, on the fact that people didn't think we can do it. Yeah. And. And that's exactly why we're still here. Well, yeah. I mean, whenever I started by media, I ran into a lot of the same issues where uh, I, I dropped out of college after three months. I went to, I went to Eureka High School, graduated with 1.9, 1.8 or 1.9 GPA, ridiculously low. Um, only thing I ever did good on was was tests, probably the only reason I even, I even graduated. Then I went to St. Louis Community College after three months, dropped out. Um, and I, I think I job hopped at seven or eight different jobs within a three or four year time frame. And even my closest friends, Eric and I have been friends for what, 15 years now, 16 years. And we're like, you know, what the hell are you going to do with your life? And then out of nowhere, after working in sales and at startup companies, I was like, I'm going to start a marketing company. That way I can use it as a, a catalyst to start other companies. And even my closest friends and people who I thought were my friends who are really just you know, people would talk shit behind my back more or less, you know, just hated on me. And I can't tell you how much that drove me to succeed even, even more than beforehand, yeah. similar to how those people are calling you rebel rebels. You use that as, as fuel to the fire per se. Right. So, right. so you, so you had that, obviously you got those, those laws passed. And so then the, the recovery of addicts, the housing. So, you, I mean, we've mm-hmm. kind of been talking about two different things. A lot of this with recovery, it's job and location, right? Where you're living. So those two things play a large part. So obviously you have the job, you know, the job thing now with coffee truck and uh, the cookie hustle. But then before that, obviously you were looking at recovery of addicts and the housing that you provided. So if you kind of talk about, you know, how you got into that and what that looks like. That that again, just like the Narcan was born from need. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time in St. Louis, first of all, there wasn't very many women's houses, sober recovery supportive houses, mm-hmm. right? There wasn't that many of them. Are they separated? Like there is no such thing as a co-ed one? No, there's not. Okay. There's so that's a, a big deal if yeah. there's not enough women houses. Yeah. yeah. And so, and we started seeing the numbers for the women rise um, from the opioids. So, so here's what happened. Like I thought it was ludicrous that again just common sense to me mm. but but every, others thought I was like this like this forethought you know I was this smart guy that was thinking forward I just thought it was common sense I thought it was ludicrous that somebody would um if they were to relapse is the common word mm-hmm. I say return to use if they were to return to use that you would immediately kick them out of the house 
you got you got one hour to get your stuff packed and you're out. Really? I thought it was like, why would you kick somebody out when they need you yeah. the most? You're supposed yeah. to be there helping them. Why mm-hmm. would you then kick them out and put them back out on the streets? And what do you think they're going to do? They're going to go get high again. And so there was th- there, there was that issue with all the housing, all of the sober living at that time. Is it still like that with halfway housing and things like that? No, or? I'll get okay. I'll get there on on. We were able to change. That. Okay, I figured. If you yeah. get state funding now, um, you have to allow. And the second thing was this part. The second thing was is if you were on medications like Suboxone or some other medications, you couldn't live in the house hmm. in the sober living. Oh, aren't those so medications? they would go to so they would go to treatment. Treatment provider would put them on a medication that arrests the use, that takes the using out of mm-hmm. the equation. Mm-hmm. But then you're going to lose your housing. Or you can't get housing. Like it, but none don't of it you need made, both? Yes. And none of it made sense to, again, common sense, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, so. Did you um, ever find out why that was? Um, Because of stigma. Because of stigma. It's the number one thing. What do you that, mean when you say that? Sorry. We don't want them take, we don't want them to have a crutch. You should just be able to stop. Right. Mm. Yeah. So them not should, understanding I, I, their I position. I stopped 40 years ago from um, you know, what w- was that John Peppercorn? What what's that word that they use? Anyways, I start John John Barleycorn or something like okay, that. Yeah. It's an old forties term, right? So I stopped forty years ago just on a dime. Yeah. You know, yeah, I went yeah. to meetings and that was it for me. Mm-hmm. You know, why can't if I can do it, you can do yeah, it. Yeah, just like my grandpa. Well, you, you weren't know, banging fentanyl. Miles. You weren't banging fentanyl, you know, for 40 times a day either. Yeah. Okay, Doug, you know, yeah. or whatever. You yeah. know what I mean? And so so anyway, so um the where our nonprofit is over on South Broadway. Um, the upstairs unit became, came for rent. There was a three bedroom apartment up there. And so Chad and I, again, signed the lease, um, and we turned it into a women's house, a women's sober living where I allowed you to come in on medications. Now we, we're not just like free for all. Mm-hmm, right. We did, we did med counts and we put, you know, they had to keep their medication in a lockbox so others didn't steal it. Like there was, it was done smart. Sure. You know what I mean? And we didn't kick them out. You know, what we, it, I'm not saying if they return to use that they wouldn't have to find residents somewhere else, but we we're going to take, it, we had to do an assessment on you to see if you could still stay in the house. Mm-hmm. If you were going to be able to arrest your use. Right. If you're going to keep getting high, of course you can't stay in the recovery housing. Right. Um, and, and I had a, a I had a, to this day, I have a zero tolerance on using or bringing drugs or alcohol into the house. Mm-hmm. You can't use or bring, if you get high at the park and I tell my residences, if you get high at the park, that's one thing. Once you bring it into the house, you put everybody else at risk. Yeah. Yep. You're a danger to others. Yeah. So again, it's not like we were just free for all in this whole thing. We thought this through. And what's this called? The name of this for uh, the audience? Mo Better Living is the name of the agency. And that's something you run? Yeah, I own, I own 50, Chad owns the other 50%. Okay. Chad and I own that company. And Chad is the same gentleman back in the day you Narcan helped pass and the, the laws with. We did. Yeah, I started the nonprofit, everything else. How long have you guys been together? We've been friends since about 2011. 2011. Okay. Um, Chad, he, you're a badass. <laughs> does he come from drug use as well? Past drug use? So Chad's story is this. Chad was a prosecuting attorney from Chicago, Illinois. Okay. Ended up on the front page of the Chicago Tribune because he got busted buying heroin. Mm. So yeah, he's a former drug user okay. as well. Okay. Um, and, you know, 
everybody always said you got the former prosecutor and you got the ex-convict that you know who would have thought yeah yeah but it worked it worked do you think a lot of the problem before you know you you kind of changed the stigma around it is that a lot of the people that were working kind of in the halfway houses and things didn't have the addiction issue beforehand well the sober livings were typically ran by individuals in recovery okay okay Um, treatment providers are the ones that were paying the bills for those right it's another story you Mm -hmm. you had a lot of them that they were just of that old school right if i can do it you can do it right you didn't have fentanyl you didn't have methamphetamine you know on every corner you didn't you know what i mean it's just like and so the stigma behind it is that's one of the biggest things we find. That's why we couldn't get the Narcan passed for so long. It was a stigma. It's why we still cannot, we run the bill every single year for clean needle exchange. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you, here's a great story. We were at Jefferson City and we testified. Chad actually got up there and testified and showed like brought all the data, 50 years of data of how clean needle exchange, not only does it help with drug use rates, but it also cuts down HIV HIV and hep C numbers, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Which is running rampant. And so we provided all this data. Chad got up there, testified beautifully. The chairman, uh, an elected official, a state representative, his first thing that he said was to all that data science was i believe that pope pius whatever was against clean needle exchange he brought religion into it as his defense yeah and i well, i'll never forget chad and i looking at each other going wasn't he the nazi pope like wasn't <laughs> wait a minute first of all wasn't he the nazi pope well, was he <laughs> fundamentally it, it, it's claimed that he was a nazi, okay. a, a nazi and fundamentally weaponizing religion uh, to not like, help people like the, the the answer to science was religion right and so anyway so those were that's and that stigma yeah. it's stigma mm-hmm. is, is, sure. is what we're up against you know and so that was a big fight so the houses you know from there we opened up four more um, so that was born from need. It wasn't because we wanted to go into business. It wasn't because we wanted to be saviors. It was, it was born from need that there wasn't enough women's houses. You couldn't be on any medications. And by the way, to answer your question, after we wrote our policies and procedures that way, mm-hmm. thankfully to the Department of Mental Health for the state of Missouri, they agreed with it and said any agency, sober living agency that gets state funds to reimbursement to house those individuals, they have to have the same policy of allowing medications. Sure. And where can people find out more about that? But like, let's say the St. Louis audience, they want to be good. They don't want to be a Nazi Pope and they want to contribute to this in some way. Where can they do that? (laughs) So you have monetwork.org is the nonprofit. You have mobetterliving.com is the, is the housing agency. Okay. So those are those two agencies. Cool. Yeah. Um, Now we talked a lot about where you were, how you got to where you are, a lot of what you did in between the past and the present. What are you working on today in business? Well, 20 second edit there is that after the sober living, I had an opportunity to co-found a treatment facility. And so I went on to co-found Sauna Lake Recovery Center, which we brought all paths to recovery, which was new. All the other agencies, Harris House, prefer they were all 12 step based we said mm. we don't care what you do yeah you know don't get pregnant in our in the our process facility, isn't important. but to yeah. get you know for your recovery but we don't care if you use 12 steps if you mm-hmm. use religion if you use working out if you use whatever it is we just want to help 
guide you into re the recovery. You care process. about the end result. Yeah. yeah, it's about that. And so, so I, you know, I helped co-found that. I was um, COO of that company for the first twenty months. Was that a for-profit or non-profit? For-profit. Okay. For-profit. Um, that and ran that company, set it up, built it into a great organization, and um, and then I was in the midst, I was working a hundred hours a week. I mean, I don't want to use excuses or anything. There was a lot of factors that were going on in my, on my own life. Most importantly, my addiction was doing push-ups in the parking lot the whole time. I'm working a hundred hours. I'm making money. I'm helping people. I'm Mr. Recovery, the ego, the mm -hmm. this, the that, and the other was all going on. And, and I started, I picked up, you know, and, um, because I had to escape all those good things even, yeah, 100 hours a week is right going back to the going back to the there. escape mm -hmm. you know trying to change my reality a little bit yeah i i even the good things i wanted to get away from because it couldn't be that good yeah well when you go from and maybe you can't relate to this but maybe you can based on what you're saying i i deal with this still to this day i'm dealing with it right now hosting the first episode of the st louis podcast is um sometimes i'm almost in disbelief looking at where I used to be and where I am now to the point where I feel something a lot of people feel maybe you can relate, which is imposter syndrome. Yeah, yep. You feel like you don't deserve what you got going on now that it's, it, it shouldn't be happening. You're a fake fraud, whatever. Why, why me? Well, when in I, fact yeah. you, you earned it, you yep. shouldn't feel that, but you fucking do, Yep. you know, and no more or less than you. My addiction tells me that all the time. I could be, you know, I got to some of the cool stuff, you know, traveling the country and speaking in front of, you know, I spoke in 17 area high schools annually in the St. Louis area um, to thousands and thousands of kids. And I could be up on stage about to speak in front of 2,000 or 5,000 or 10,000 people. And I'm up there thinking the whole time, if they only knew who the fuck I really was. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that whole, and that's, ego for me too, you know, sure. even saying that rather than just, um, uh, being grateful for exactly where I'm at. So is that, that recovery, um, Sana Lake, Sana Lake, that's still going on. Sana Lake is still an organization okay. helping a lot of people. Yeah. I'm no longer involved in that. So my, obviously my relapse had something to do with that as sure. COO. Mm -hmm. Um, but I went away to Betty Ford treatment center out in California, Palm Springs, the Betty Ford. <laughs> Came back, um, got together with, got a guy uh, by the name of Mark that came out and, and lived with me for about 37 days that we did 24-7 therapy. And and he really got me onto this path of freedom. And and, um, and then I started, during that process, I, you know, the, the last piece is the employment piece. Mm -hmm. yep. And that's why I started Coffee Culture and Cookie Hustle was to be able to hire people out of the sober houses, give them some skills give them a positive environment. I also did it for my own mental health. Mm -hmm. I wanted to have fun, you know? Um, I wanted to have a cool environment um, where we had fun. Recovery is a, it's the number one thing in my life, like I told you earlier, um, but I get to connect with our community. And I always say, I want to do good business. I just wanted to do good business. I wanted sure. to meet everybody. I wanted to give them a fair deal. You know, the reason our cookies are quarter pound or four ounces. Yeah. So tell us about the businesses. Yeah. Well, I, I, I want, if I was going to look you in the eyes and charge you $4 for a cookie, I wanted you to get $4 of the cookie. I didn't want you to come bitch at me later on. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that was $4, you know, like, yeah, let me throw this hockey puck size cookie at there you and go. then you'll know, yeah, you know the what $4 I mean? Worth, yeah. 
But um, and so I've got to hire people in recovery there and they're not all in recovery. I have a nurse. She left nursing. She's been doing the COVID nursing and she just wanted a break. She came to work with us. I have a teacher, you know, a lot of different people there. And most importantly for me, it's kind of getting back to my my roots of ground level. You know, when you're a COO and you've got 300 employees and you're hiring doctors and firing doctors and nurses and nurse practitioners and therapists, you know, you, that's where my ego took me. Right. And I just, I just needed to be as authentic as I could in South St. Louis for a while. Do you hire people out of the houses? Absolutely. Absolutely. I figured you did. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's, I partnered with St. Patrick Center, the, the, uh, mm-hmm. down in the city, and um, we helped them set up their barista training there so they could train people there, you know? No payment, just my part of being part of the community and trying yeah. to give back some good juju, you know sure, what I yeah. mean? Yeah. And, um, and that's where I'm at. And the, uh, for the audience here in St. Louis and, and around the globe that listens, what are the names of the two businesses and what do you guys offer and where are they? So we're at the corner of Tesson, um, Ferry and Lindbergh. So we're in the strip with uh, Piscetti's mm-hmm. um, right across from Concord Grill. So 5532 South. And that's Lindbergh. Cookie Hustle, right? And that is both businesses. Are okay. There. So we have the bakery and the coffee culture there. So And then I have a coffee truck that goes out and does private events. And for the audience, that's Cookie Hustle and... Coffee culture. And coffee culture. And those cool. are, uh, yeah, Cookie Hustle STL or Coffee Culture STL and on Coffee Culture is a truck as well, correct? It, there's a truck. That's what we started at. Where does it go? Unit. Does it still do that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, We're where do you guys go? Uh, all over. The St. Louis Blues have hired us for okay. some of their oh, events. Wow. Uh, Anheuser-Busch hires us. We do a lot of schools. We do some fairs and stuff during the mm-hmm. summer, you know. We've done Peebly Days, things like that. But sure. All over. It, it, we're not a roaming truck that you're going to see us just, you know, parked in downtown St. Louis hoping somebody comes out. Sure. We, 99% of our business is privately booked. This morning, we were hired by a bakery, of all things. Interesting. And they buy our cookies. <laughs> they must be good. Though. Yeah, they must be good. <laughs> Our cookies are really. How really big good. are they? Like, let's for the for they're, the part of the audience that's actually watching. How big are these? Suckers? So they are four inches. They're they're about that thick. They're hockey puck size. So okay. think of a hockey puck, and they're four ounce and, cookies and real thick. Yeah, they're quarter pound cookies. Katie made a sign for today. four dollars. Yeah, she that's made a big, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and but but listen, they're all our re- recipes. They're all baked fresh every day in house. That's why we only bake three types. We have a, about fifteen different um, cookies, but we only bake three a day, and we do just rotate through them. Um, and they are phenomenal. I mean, they went viral on the next door app. Yeah, and, and people like we saw seven hundred people come in in the first four days. Oh wow, that's crazy! Did that when did, did that, it open? August 29th. Of this yeah. year? Yeah. Oh, and, wow. and hold up. And I bet you money, I'll put money on the table. I bet you money I'm the only guy in South County that has a Christmas palm tree Christmas at their palm store. Tree. So that's a thing? I got one in my store. It is now. <laughs> it is now. <laughs> and I will look, be going with, sur- with yeah. surfing Santa nice. uh, ornaments. Nice. Katie, did nice. you see the Christmas palm tree? No? All right. I'll have to go out there. Floor, um, floor looks like the ocean. It's oh, so pretty, what's that's unique? Pretty dope. Yeah. Okay. Pretty dope. I'm going to have to take it. I wish you would have brought some of the cookies. I, I, 
you know, I do You know, too. what's up with that? When I was out there, I, I know I'm a dick. <laughs> <laughs> so why, why cookies? Are you a cookie guy? Yeah, good question. You know, it's, it, it's a great, that's a great question. I was in Cal, right after the relapse and everything like that. I was in California visiting my son, Aaron. The same one, by the way, that wrote me that letter when I was mm-hmm. in federal prison, mm-hmm. you know, relationship with today. And I was out there um, visiting him and, and we had ordered some cookies from a cookie store out there. And I'm like, we should do like something cool like this. And who doesn't love cookies? I, I so, love cookies. Chocolate okay. chip is the ultimate cookie. I, I hate will. cake. I'm a cookie guy. I don't like sweets except for cookies and pie. I mean, cookies so. are way better than cake. So that makes sense. Yes, they are. It's the best sweet. I'm going to go out there because I, I live off uh, Lindbergh and Watson. Oh, so I'm you're right gonna, up yeah, the street. You're right by Dave Sinclair, right? Right around the corner for you. Yeah, yeah, it's like yeah so I just away. need to go there. I live in Sunset Hills right off Lindbergh yeah, and 44. We're, I'm, we're practically Sunset. Why yeah. haven't you been there yet? I, I didn't know about it. Then Katie. Katie? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Katie. Uh, Katie didn't share her cookie yeah. either, did she? She went there, liked it so much. She wanted to set you up as a guest on the yeah. podcast. I was like, damn, I feel bad because he's a neighbor. I haven't been over there. So I'm going to be going over there. We'll have to we'll have to cater some food for our yeah. Thursdays that we get bagels. Now oh, we yeah. can get, yeah. we we can get be cookies and cookies. Yeah. Cookies and, or cookies. And you cut them into force. Like I, I actually designed them so you could split the cookie in half. No, Check everyone them. gets their own cookie. All right. And you're open from at... at Six uh, both six a.m. six p.m. Right. Six a.m. to six p.m. Seven days a week. Okay. And we always have good music on too. All by right. the way. That's well, good. if you That's like cookies, go go visit it. That will be Cookie Hustle. Um, that said, Robert, before we wrap up today's episode, what social media profiles, business of yours, etc., would you like to plug for the audience to go out and follow and learn more about you? Cookie Hustle STL or Coffee Culture STL on all the social medias. Okay. Or just come by 5532 South Limburg. Yes. Okay. Um, any personal profiles or plugs you want to drop? No. I. Here's what I want to say. Sure. Let's, let's all just try to be good people this week. Absolutely. Amen to that, brother. Yeah. Uh, Robert, Eric. That's all the time we have for today. However, the St. Louis Podcast will be back next week, 7 a.m. Central Standard Time with a new episode, new guests, and unfortunately, more of your host, Eric Brown, and myself, Garrett Atkins. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today, Robert. Thanks for coming out and a pleasure hosting hosting this podcast for the people of St. Louis. Until next time, this is Garrett Atkins signing out.